Thank you for tuning in to the Practical Preservation Podcast. Please take a moment to visit our website, practicalpreservationservices.com, for additional information and tips to help you restore your historical home. If you've not done so, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and also like us on Facebook. Welcome to the Practical Preservation Podcast, hosted by Danielle and Jonathan Kepperling. Kepperling Preservation Services is a family-owned business based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, dedicated to the preservation of our built architectural history for today's use as well as future generations. Our weekly podcast provides you with expert advice specific to the unique needs of renovating a historic home, educating by sharing our from-the-trenches preservation knowledge and our guests' expertise, balancing modern needs while maintaining the historical significance, character, and beauty of your period home. Today on the Practical Preservation Podcast, we have Alyssa Freistack with us from Place Economics. Thank you for joining me today. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Danielle. So tell me about your background. Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, I kind of took a little bit of a circuitous path to preservation, um, although I think it was something that um, was always an interest of mine, even before I knew what preservation uh, actually was. Um, You know, growing up, my family was what we call um, heritage tourists. We always made a point to go to destinations that had, you know, a rich cultural history and opportunities for us to learn, be that through tours or museums, things like that. Um, And then in fifth grade, uh, my teacher actually lived in a Sears kit home that was part of an annual house tour um, in our town. Mm -hmm. And so she was really involved with the old house community. And she actually set up a class field trip for um, us to go to the local historical society, which I just found fascinating. Um, I remember coming home from school that day and just rattling on for days to like whoever would listen about (laughs) how cool that field trip was. Um, So I think early on, I was kind of um, instilled with this desire to like learn about history through experiencing place. Um, But apart from that curiosity, I actually had a career right out of high school um, as a professional ballet dancer. Um, So I spent six years dancing um, with various companies in the Midwest, um, getting to perform on some really beautiful and historic stages. Um, But then I sustained, you know, what would become a career ending injury. And after that happened, I kind of needed to figure out what my next step was. And all of those architecture tours growing up (laughs) had kind of stuck with me and it was still an interest of mine. Um, And so I decided that I wanted to become an architect. Um, And so I went back to school um, first at a community college uh, where I took some architectural history courses and drafting courses. And then I enrolled at the University of Illinois at Chicago in their architectural studies program. Um, But somewhere along the way, I kind of figured out that what I really wanted to do didn't involve designing new buildings, but studying old ones. Um, And being in Chicago, um, you know, part of an urban campus and seeing firsthand not only the amazing um, older housing stock, but also witnessing firsthand the housing affordability crisis, um, I ended up writing my undergraduate capstone on the intersection of historic preservation and affordable housing. Oh, that's interesting. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. And that kind of continued, that interest continued on, um, you know, after UIC, I went on to grad school at the school of the art Institute of Chicago, um, where I earned a master's in historic preservation. Um, and while I was at SAIC, I continued my research into affordable housing and preservation. Um, and so that was again, the topic of my master's thesis. Um, but I also, during that time, kind of started to get interested in learning how I could start measuring the impacts of preservation, mm -hmm. um, especially as it pertained to housing. Um, it was, you know, my initial goal was to kind of use that, that learning of how to measure things um, as part of my thesis. Um, and of course, I, in that, while I was doing that research for housing, I became familiar with place economics. Um, and the former Preservation Green Lab. Um, and I knew that GIS was a big part of how they conducted their research. Um, so while I was still in grad school at SAIC, I enrolled in a GIS certificate program at my alma mater, UIC. And yeah, kind of one thing led to another. And that was that experience using data and using GIS was kind of what ultimately brought me to work at Place Economics in 2019. So. That, that's um, very interesting. And, and I think um, most people don't think of, you know, historic housing or historic buildings and affordable housing. So I think that's interesting that you put those together, you know, even, even you know, in your undergraduate. But yeah. for listeners that maybe aren't familiar, what is the GIS? Yeah, so GIS is Geographic Information Systems. Um, so it's basically a really fancy term for mapping. Um, and what's really unique about GIS is that we're able to spatialize data. So, you know, we're able, a lot of this, the work that we do, especially when you're beginning to learn how to use GIS is looking at census data and assigning it to census blocks or census tracts, which, you know, I think a lot of people are familiar with, with the concept of census tracts. Um, and so it's really kind of, bringing a spatial component to understand data, which, you know, at, in, at Place Economics and, you know, other research firms like that, it's, it's really a large part of how we look at and interpret, um, you know, analysis and, and questions that we have. So, yeah. I know, I, um, I think it's a similar system that our county uses for our, um, like, property records. And right. then each municipality, like, you know, has an overlay on that. So we, I, I'm, I, I get into that with zoning. I don't look at it for data. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a lot of times too, what we're, what we're doing is we, we go to the county's website and we go to their open data portals and we're able to download, um, you know, for free zoning shape files right. or, you know, parcel shape files and things like that. So yeah, a lot of times it is stuff, especially the census stuff is all available for free online. Um, but unfortunately, GIS isn't super user friendly, so it it, it takes someone who knows how to use it to be able to actually interpret to get it. Get some and, good data, and, <laughs> yeah, in the right way. So, so I think you kind of explained, you know, what drew you into preservation. Uh, is there anything that you wanted to to add to that? Um, you know, I think it's it's just this like concept of collective memory mm -hmm. has has always really like drawn me in especially um and that like this historic fabric is something that kind of helps us 
you know, formulate our own personal individual experience and also form all our like cultural identity and stuff. And, and that that's just kind of always been just so cool to me. You know, the fact that I can like stand somewhere in someone's house that, you know, helped like found the country or, you know, right. even, you know, uh, sites of civil rights, you know, protests or things like, like, it's just so fascinating that we can, you know, be in one place and being, be experiencing something that happened, you know, a long time ago. It just kind of that continuum of history is just so fascinating to me. Yeah. So I, I, I agree with you. I, um, I, I, I really, um, I, I, I love to, I, when you said you were a heritage tourist, I'm like, that's what I am too. Like <laughs> some, somebody was talking about going someplace. I'd be like, oh, I always wanted to go to Charleston. And they're like, why? I said architecture. And they're like, do you ever not work? <laughs> yeah, I, I, have a friend, I have a friend's bachelorette party coming up and we're going to Nashville. And she was asking us what we wanted to do. And I was like, well, can we get like a behind the scenes tour of the Ryman? Like, you know, I'm like, I'm constantly thinking of like, you know, in, when I'm in a new place, constantly trying to figure out places to go where I can like still be, it's, it's a lifestyle, you it know, is. it's not just a profession, it's a lifestyle. So, I agree. <laughs> yeah. uh, so tell me a little bit about uh, place economics as, you know, as the, as the firm. Yeah, yeah. So Place Economics is a Washington, D.C. based uh, private research firm that's situated at the intersection of historic preservation and economics. Um, so we mainly serve municipal historic preservation offices. Um, sometimes we serve state historic preservation offices or statewide like Main Street coordinating programs. Um, and sometimes we also serve local or statewide nonprofit historic preservation organizations. Um, and we mainly conduct research at both the local um, or citywide level, as well as the statewide level. Um, and additionally, we sometimes have international clients that we do, you know, policy development work for um, as well. And so we, we pride ourselves on specializing in both the qualitative um, and quantitative sides. So on the qualitative side, that might be, you know, studying the demographics of a historic district, um, looking at catalytic impacts of investment that was the result of a grant program, um, you know, looking at how many jobs were created from historic tax credit activity, um, and kind of one that what one that every client wants to know is uh, for us to look at like patterns of property value change in historic districts as yeah. well. Um, but we also know that data doesn't you know tell the full story alone. Um, so we really like to talk to people on the ground and conduct interviews that ultimately end up as sidebar stories in our um, reports. And those really do help demonstrate like the human side of um, what we're finding in our data. Um, but then apart from those um, quantitative kind of metrics, um, we also do a lot of policy research um, and development. So, you know, a lot of times our clients are not only interested about, you know, in the economic and social and cultural ecosystem that we study in our uh, qualitative side of things, but they are also interested in learning about policy um, and strategies that might, you know, either solve a problem that they're experiencing or maximize the economic benefits of preservation for their community. 
Um, so for that, you know, we carry out like extensive stakeholder engagement um, so that we can understand what the community wants and needs are. Um, and then we kind of use that plus our own, you know, extensive knowledge of domestic and international best practices to kind of help inform the recommendations that we also, you know, we offer to clients for so. the, as the, as like your conclusions in your, in your reports. Exactly. Yeah. So it's kind of interpreting what we hear during those stakeholder engagements coupled with, you know, all of the, the reading and research that we do um, at the domestic and international level to kind of formulate those. So, yeah. That's um, very interesting. So I know when I reached out to you, I, I had seen some posts that that were that you or maybe maybe they were um, articles that you had written about two different topics. So I asked you if you would talk about both of those during during the um, the podcast today. So talk to me a little bit about what deconstruction is. Yeah, yeah. So deconstruction was something um, that was kind of a new concept to our firm, um, even just as as recent as a year ago. Um, but around that time is when the Office of um, Historic Preservation in San Antonio came to us because they were curious about the kinds of impacts that enacting a deconstruction ordinance would have on their city. Um, they were actually trying to get uh, an ordinance passed at the time and they kind of needed a little bit more data and ammunition to provide to elected officials. Mm -hmm. um, and so at Police Economics, like we're always up for a challenge um, and we're always really curious. Um, and so we, and we kind of also realized that this was a topic that was probably gonna be important in the future of preservation. So we agreed to take on the assignment um, and it really ended up being a great opportunity for us to do some research and development and pushed us to learn um, new methodologies of measurement. Um, so, I, I, sorry to interrupt. I was just yeah. thinking, were you, were you concerned about the, um, like the impact on like the waste, um, like the, the, in the trash cycles? Is that what you focused on or I was, yeah. That's what yeah. Was yeah. We were, we were interested in kind of learning a little bit more about, um, you know, how, how much could be kept out of the waste stream um, if a deconstruction ordinance had been passed. Um, and so to get back a little bit to like what deconstruction is, mm -hmm. um, deconstruction is the process of dismantling structures um, component by component uh, basically in the reverse order in which they were installed. Um, and the goal of this is to harvest materials to be salvaged. Um, and since it requires much more like skill than typical right. mechanical demolition, it's usually undertaken by a specialized deconstruction contractor. Um, but because the materials are removed in such a careful manner, um, they're able to be reused whether that be in um, you know, other construction projects or um, they are also upcycled into new like value added product products like furniture and, and you know, things like that. Um, but you know, obviously we know that not every building can be saved, um, but those you know, instances when a building has to come down, we've really kind of come to believe that deconstruction provides you know, many more benefits than traditional um, demolition would so we're big fans now <laughs> yeah well and i we um i do some consulting work for our local uh, preservation um uh group in in lancaster and there was a building that we found out you know 
after it had been approved, after it had gone through the approval process to be de demolished. So we approached the, the township to ask them if they would at least encourage them to salvage what they could, because there was a barn, there's a lot of materials that can be salvaged from a barn. Right. There's, yeah. yeah. And, and they were actually open to it. So we, we felt like, you know, it wasn't what we wanted, but it, at least it was kind it was a little bit of a victory. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then you can come back and say, this doesn't have to be a one-off thing. Like we can be right. doing this a lot, yeah. you know, yeah. um, it can become common practice, you know? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's interesting about the cities codifying that into their demolition ordinances because I think from it's 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 um, it's very sustainable. Like a, it's a very you know it's a very green practice. And the first the first uh, municipality that I looked at, and I don't know if you looked at it when you were doing your study, that I that I was aware that had done it was Portland, Oregon. Is right. That, were they the first or that you ever? I. Don't quote me on it, but I okay. think that they were, yeah. yeah. And they, they've kind of expanded their ordinance over time as well to like start including more buildings on, um, you know, what, what, what gets uh, deconstructed. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah, I agree. I think it's, it's definitely part of this larger, you know, I think we've come to realize that the linear um, waste stream has been really detrimental um, and had some really bad effects on our planet and, you know, as we move forward grappling with climate change and sea level rise and like all these other existential crises that we're, we're facing, um, we're, we're starting to realize that we need more sustainable practices. Um, and so I think deconstruction is kind of situated in this other, you know, shift to the circular um, waste economy movement, um, you know, circular uh economy models where, you know, things are used and then reused and recirculated in the economy in these like closed loops. Um, right. And so deconstruction kind of fits and is well situated within that circular economy model. Um, and yeah, and there's, there's plenty of, you know, there's a lot of cities across the country, like you mentioned, Portland, um, San Jose, Palo Alto, um, Madison, Wisconsin, they're all, you know, kind of starting to make shifts and codify this stuff. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we were actually, we were really pleasantly surprised to learn that our uh, San Antonio deconstruction report was the final push that was needed for the mayor of Pittsburgh to sign an executive order oh. um, to instate a deconstruction policy. Um, so it's really a, a movement that's kind of happening all over the country and we really, really love to see it. So yeah, that's exciting. Yeah. I, I think that, yeah, I think as more, I think that it should be incorporated more because there's a lot that can be salvaged from a building right. and right. it doesn't need to be thrown away. Yeah. 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 So I, I, cause I, I remember probably 15 years ago, um, I read the, um, restoration economy book. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's like 20 to 30% of the, of our waste is just construction waste. Right. And that, that to me is just crazy, but I can believe it. Like I see dumpsters rolling off of construction sites and right. you know, full of stuff. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And it's not only, not only does so much of that, you know, of what's in landfills is made up of C and D waste. It's also, yeah. you know, um, deconstruction also just provides a lot of opportunities for, for jobs and for an increase in labor income, 
you know, and when it's, when it's a local deconstruction crew, who's undertaking these projects, you know, that they're going out and they're spending that increased labor income in the local economy. And that's like really good for, for, you know, the local dynamics of a, of a, an economy. Um, yeah. When, yeah. When you started to say the, the, um, the job, I thought, oh yeah, these are local jobs, just like preservation yeah. jobs. Yeah. They're, they're, they're local. They can't be outsourced, you know, right. you need people to do that work. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And it not only provides, you know, jobs, on site, but it also provides like warehouse jobs and retail and sales jobs. Cause a lot of times these, these materials end up going to like a local re restore, you know, right. kind of place. Um, and so, you know, it really, it, it multiplies the number of jobs. You know, if you're, if you're on a demolition site, there's like two guys working and they're there for like two to three days. Right. right. And then that's it. And then that goes to a landfill. Um, but you know, and, in deconstruction, it's, it's a much larger crew that's needed. Um, it's a very like skilled, you know, labor force that needs to be used and they're there for, you know, possibly like three weeks even, you know, so it's, it's really, um, and then that, and then that material goes on to have another life, which, you know, creates all these other jobs. Um, so it's, it's really interesting to kind of see like the, the ripple effect that deconstruction can have in a community. Yeah. 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 Very, very interesting. I'm, I'm excited that that's kind of gaining traction. And um, yeah. yeah, so, and I think that that's, I mean, I think that there needs to be more conversation about the intersection between, you know, sustainability, sustainability and preservation. And this is just another way to kind of extend that. Yeah. Extend exactly. that. Um, so then the other topic that we had, um, that I had seen that you were writing about was that you had brought up before about affordable housing. Uh, yeah. in relation to, to older buildings. So talk to me about that. Yeah. Yeah. That could honestly be a whole nother podcast, um, <laughs> especially because that's something that, you know, I've been, it been a personal interest and also now a place economics, a research interest of mine for years and years. But um, yeah, so I think first it's, I kind of want to talk a little bit and break this down, the preservation and affordable housing um, using an, an analogy that I think preservationists are um, familiar with. Um, and a lot of times preservation is seen in terms of like uppercase P preservation and lowercase P preservation, right? Um, where uppercase preservation is signified by like high style, you know, buildings and formal designation and lowercase preservation is the act of just, you know, keeping older, often vernacular, non-designated buildings standing. Um, and I think it's really important to see that um, affordable housing can kind of be seen using that same analogy. So uppercase affordable housing, you know, uses tax credits and incentives and deep subsidies to provide affordable housing. Right. Um, whereas lowercase affordable housing doesn't really rely on subsidies, um, but rather the owner's ability to like rehab and maintain their building in an economic manner, right? right. Um, this kind of like lowercase affordable housing is often what, what um, we refer to as naturally occurring affordable housing. Mm -hmm. um, and I think preservationists have long believed that, you know, older non-designated housing, AKA lower preservation, right. um, lowercase preservation is already providing unsubsidized affordable housing, AKA lowercase affordable housing mm -hmm. in their communities. Um, and so, we at Place Economics, again, were approached by the San Antonio Office of Historic Preservation um, 
and they kind of wanted us to explore this theory a little bit more. Um, they were mainly concerned with um, understanding how lowercase preservation of older non-designated buildings was providing lowercase um, affordable housing. Um, and so for that study, rather than looking only at historic districts um, and comparing those against the rest of the city, which is our typical model that we use for our methodology, um, we ended up creating a study area that consisted of the census block groups in which the majority of the housing units were built prior to 1960. Okay. Um, so we were um, more interested in just knowing like where is older housing. And, you know, within those study block groups, we kind of had a couple of questions we wanted to answer, which was, you know, we just kind of wanted to understand the characteristics of that older housing, as well as, you know, the demographics of the people who were living there. Um, and we also wanted to look at the, the rent levels and the owner costs and property values in those areas to see if those older units were actually serving an affordable housing need. Um, and, you know, and the pattern that we found kind of confirmed what like we've, especially the Office of Historic Preservation in San Antonio knew was that um, these older undesignated housing units were disproportionately serving um, Hispanic residents mm. and lower income residents and really consisted of um, long term homeowners. Um, and so you know, those were the characteristics of the people who lived there, but we also found that the owner costs and the renter costs were lower in these areas as well. Um, and, but, you know, apart from that, so it's, it's lower costs to live there. We know that it's um, serving communities that really need it. Um, right. But we also found that property levels um, or property value levels in those areas were also appreciating at a much um, higher and faster rate mm -hmm. than the rest of the city. That's interesting. Yeah, which which we, you know, we realized like that puts them at a greater risk of becoming teardowns. Right. Um, and so, you know, we kind of realized um, that it's, it's more cost effective and a, a better investment um, to invest resources in those older housing units um, rather than so that people can actually stay there and live there and not get displaced right. um, rather than um, just kind of letting the market do what it's doing. And eventually those people will get, you know, pushed out because there's a lot of teardowns. And then right. once, once something's torn down, it's, it's a much larger unit and most likely not going to be affordable. Um, so yeah, it's kind of, it was kind of a cycle that we, we, wanted to prove what was happening and then also prove what, what risk they were at as well. Right. Right. So. And then do you, um, offer like, uh, not a solution, but do you offer recommendations or do you allow, do you, do you kind of just turn that over to the office of historic preservation and let them kind of come up with like maybe policies? Yeah. Yeah. No, we did. We did, um, give some recommendations for San Antonio. Um, and I think that they're, you know, starting to work towards some of those. I know a deconstruction ordinance was actually one of the things that we um, had suggested because, you know, deconstruction, you know, demolition is visually um, traumatic to a community. Right. And so we, we also found that you know, demolitions were happening a lot more in these areas that were, you know, housing majority minority and low income communities. 
Um, and so deconstruction at least offers a little bit less traumatic um, removal, but right. it also provides materials then that can be recirculated for a little bit more affordable costs um, back into the community so that people who are living there, who, you know, maybe have a little bit of maintenance that needs to be done on their property, they can be replacing like with like, um, right. at a little bit more of a, an affordable cost, you know, than, than going to, you know, Home Depot or a hardware store and, right. and getting those kind of stock materials. So, yeah. And they match. I mean, I know our, uh, we live in a, we live in a duplex and our neighbors were getting rid of their, the, the French doors between the living room and the dining room. And we didn't have ours. So we really went and got theirs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's keeping things in use, you know, like the energy that we use to create those, those materials doesn't get lost then. And if you can, you know, find windows out in a back alley somewhere and take them like that stops them from going to landfill. You're right. getting them for free. You can, you know, it, it's a lot more economical for you to be able to maintain, um, maintain a home. If it's, if it's something that's already, you know, come out of another building. So, right. yeah. Yeah. So, um, what are the common misconceptions uh, about preservation is? Yeah. So I think, one of the biggest misconceptions about preservation and preservationists in general is that we're opposed to progress and change, right? Yeah. I, um, I've heard that too. <laughs> oh yeah. It's, it's something that like we're accused of all the time. Yeah. Um, and part of that is uh, a commu communication problem that is kind of plaguing our field. Um, part of it is a lot of the general public, you know, either not understanding what we do or seeing what we do as not relevant, um, which is also an issue as well. Um, but something that we've been doing at Place Economics um, might start to kind of dispel um, those myths about preservationists. Um, you know, one of our New Year's resolutions at Place Economics was to reinstate um, something that we had started years ago, which was our pres polls. And our press polls are surveys on preservation kind of current issues um, that we push out to our preservation professionals network um, through various media, media channels and, um, and stuff like that. And so especially the last three that we've done, we've kind of learned a lot. The last three were on um, deconstruction, um, affordable housing and ADUs, accessory dwelling units. Yeah. Um, and so we found um, through those surveys that um, an overwhelming majority of preservation professionals support, you know, these forward thinking measures that, um, you know, for things like allowing construction of ADUs in historic, or in historic districts and neighborhoods, right. um, implementing policies and measures that protect um, existing affordable housing. Um, and you know deconstruction mandates that call for recycling and reuse, um, things like that. So, I think a lot of what these survey results have shown us is that preservationists kind of no longer fit that like NIMBY stereotype um, <laughs> that we're like so often assigned. Um, but that the majority of us now, especially um, especially I'd say the younger generations, um, we actively want to engage with these issues and we want to start thinking of more flexible approaches right. to preservation. And, you know, we want to be part of major issues like climate change and housing and, and social equity and stuff like that. So I think, 
at least we're, we're doing our little part to kind of figure out where preservationists stand on these issues and kind of dispel some of those, those myths and rumors about us. <laughs> I think that, I think that's great. Um, because I do, like I was, I, I, um, in our neighborhood, we have a large hospital and they were wanting to tear down two buildings mm-hmm. and there was like a, a, it was over zoom, but there was a, there was a, um, neighborhood zoom, you know, to talk about it. And um, the one guy kept saying, why do you, why are you trying to stop them from doing, you know, and like, and I'm like, nobody's trying to stop them. They can incorporate, there's a lot of things they can do besides tear these buildings down. And he just kept, he just kept saying it. And finally, I'm like, no, nobody said that. Like, stop. Like, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I, that's a problem that I think a lot of yeah. preservationists face, right? Like it's all happening at the local level and there's a lot of like local politics involved. There's a lot of like hands in the pot. And, yeah. and I think, you know, when we, when we say we don't want something, it's, it's taken that we don't want anything to happen. Right. To, yeah. You know? yeah. Um, and then that's not really the case. It's like, no, we, we just, we want to make sure that the resources are, are still there and we also want to make sure that um, whatever development happens is done in a sensitive manner, you know, right. yeah. um, and, and there's plenty of options other than just tearing it down because you think that that's the easiest thing to do. Right. Um, yeah. So, yeah. 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 So, yeah, it, 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 I was like, I, I just, you know, that I hadn't, I hadn't gone to a lot of public, uh, like, you know, local community meetings that like really took me back when he was like, why are you trying to stop all the progress? I'm like, nobody said that. <laughs> stop. <laughs> Uh, so what um what trends or challenges do you see in in preservation yeah and I think there's you know a challenge that I see is kind of a little bit aligned to what we've kind of just been talking about right is that I think we're seen as very reactive um rather than proactive in situations that involve you know historic or you know just older resources um And so I think it's really important for preservationists to um, build relationships with those outside of our field. Um, You know, I think part of of that communication and education problem with the general public is that we're just really siloed. Um, And so, you know, if we're building those relationships outside our field, um, you know, when discussions are being had and when decisions are being made, we're not only in the loop then, but we already have a seat at the table, right? Like they already know to include us. They already know that we um, are the people they should be talking to with regards to older buildings. Um, And I think that that would be a really huge step in the right direction, um, you know, and kind of making sure that we're part of those conversations and that our opinions are heard and respected. and stuff like right. that and yeah and yeah and I think some of that um I think having a seat at the table is very important but I, I think that some of the like you were talking about like accessory buildings in a in a historic district mm-hmm. like that to me just and that to me doesn't seem like it would be a huge issue because it's not you're not hurting the building at all like you're just adding something in the yard like right. you know what I mean so like like I think that sometimes 
preservationists need to be a little bit practical too with their recommendations. When you have that seat at the table, you can't just be like, no, I need to have everything my way or, you know, you have to be able to give a little bit that, you know, and be, and be a little bit practical. Right. Exactly. And I think, you know, for me, at least I'm kind of one of those preservationists who thinks like, if something is still standing, that's a win, right. you know, yeah. like it doesn't need, in my opinion, to have, you know, perfect windows that match exactly with what was there before. Right. If, if that building is still in productive use and it's providing a need for the community, then that's a win, yeah. you know? And, and especially with like accessory dwelling units, like a lot of times in historic districts, like they're already there, you know, their right. carriage houses, their garages, yeah. their yeah. basement units, you know, like, so they're already there and, and they don't, you know, at all take away from the historic nature of the, of the community and stuff right. like that. It's just, we just want a little bit of control over, you know, if, if you're putting in a new one, maybe what it looks like so that it right. blends so, in a little yeah. bit, you know, um, but, but other than that, like we, we are all for, you know, increasing density in already, you know, dense neighborhoods, which are right. you know, historic districts. So, yeah. yeah. Now, yeah, I, I, I just, I, I know that sometimes, that's another, I think, and maybe it goes along with the same, the same idea, but like that, like, you know, if you, if you let the preservationists have a seat at the table, they're just going to like always be, you know, negative about anything you want to do. So like, <laughs> yeah. uh, there's yeah. a, um, uh, so yeah, uh, there's a uh, building in Lancaster that I'm actually really glad that they saved, um, but it was, it was like on a secondary street, like in an alley behind like it was it was like I I didn't know if I would have put up the fight you know that the people did and I'm like they are much more committed than I am (laughs) but they saved it and now it's a really great space and I'm glad that they saved it but like I just didn't know if that would have been the fight that I would have picked (laughs) yeah yeah. and I think yeah I think that that's like a struggle because like I'm just thinking back even in here in Chicago we had um an incident a couple or an incident a couple of years ago where it was the back of a building. It was, you know, a garage unit in an alleyway basically, but it was in a historic district. Um, and the way that the property was situated, it, you could kind of see the back of the house from a main thoroughfare. Um, but what was needed was, um, and a ramp, um, for, because the person who lived in that building was in a wheelchair and, um, you know, I think, for me, I didn't see anything wrong with putting no. in an elevator lift or a ramp or things no. like that, um, because no. that is what's necessary. Yeah. You know, we want people who have disabilities uh, to be able to live and enjoy um, the quality of life of right. you know, being in an old building and in a you know walkable and accessible neighborhood. Um, and so for me, I kind of, there was some opposition to letting them do that. Oh, and goodness. I just- yeah. Yeah, that's I, something that could be removed. I mean, it's it's not something that's permanent. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And um, yeah, and I think for us to be able to stay relevant, we have to be able to acknowledge that like those kind of needs are there. Yeah. And you know, we shouldn't just say, oh, well, if you can't get into this building, then you should go live somewhere else. Yeah. You know, no. um, that that wasn't okay with me. You know. No. Um, no, I agree with you. I I do. I I definitely agree with you. Uh, was there anything that as we were talking that you, that I didn't think to ask you about, or that maybe you thought of while we, while we were having our conversation that you wanted to share before we wrap up? 
Um, yeah, other than, you know, our reports are, they're all online, um, and they're, they're free to download and read. Um, so I know we kind of just like grazed the surface on a lot of these, but there's a lot of really great data, you know, which I'm heavily involved in creating and stuff like that. So I really appreciate if you go there and, and look at that. And, um, you know, I think also as well, it's really important for, um, preservationists to not fight anecdotes with anecdotes um, and that we actually start fighting these, you know, small criticisms and anecdotes with actual data. So um, I think that that's something that our reports provide and yeah, you can see it all on our website. So yeah, I think that there's a, there is definitely a wealth of, of knowledge um, on your website and in your reports. And I've, um, I've, pointed many people toward, towards, you, towards your direction. So yeah. I appreciate oh, the work, you. the work that you're doing. Um, yeah. besides the reports, are you doing any seminars or anything that you would like to promote? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, my colleagues, uh, Caitlin Cotton and Rodney Sink will be presenting, um, some sessions at the Florida main street conference, um, coming up in July here. Um, and Rodney, um, was the state coordinating our state main street coordinator for North Carolina um, for many years. So it's always great to hear him talk about main street, um, North Carolina, especially, which, you know, was the city or the state that he worked in um, has a really mature program. They've been around for 40 years. They've really done some great things. So um, that should be really worthwhile um, if you're in the main street kind of movement side of preservation. Um, and then also on our place economic social media channels, um, which is Facebook and Instagram mainly, um, we also post a lot of really great like interactive and thought provoking content. And we actually, um, another one of our New Year's resolutions was to kind of start bi-weekly news roundups. Um, so all of us are just kind of curious people and we do a lot of reading and research on the side. Um, Cause again, like the, I think a lot of preservationists, we treat this as a lifestyle and that it's not just a nine to five and we, we always want to be learning more. Um, so we kind of decided to take that, um, that exercise that we do of gathering knowledge and creating these um, news roundups on Friday. So it's almost like a weekend reading list um, that you can, can view and read and we provide the links for you and, um, if you want, you can also sign up to be, um, to get that pushed to your inbox as well. So, um, yeah, that's, yeah, I, I am on, I am on that mailing list. I, I enjoy it. Oh, excellent. Yeah. We've got one coming out this Friday. So <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I'll make sure that those, um, links. Oh, and what is your website? Also yeah. Our website is placeeconomics.com. And there you can, you know, click on our resources tab and like I said, be able to download all of our reports. Um, you can also look back at our place blog, which has all of our news roundups and all of the, um, when, when we get the results of the press polls, we post them on our place blog as well. Um, so yeah, that's all on our website. Okay, well, very good. Thank you so much uh, for your time today. I, I felt like I learned a lot. Yeah, great, awesome. <laughs> yeah, I had a great time. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Practical Preservation Podcast. The resources discussed during this episode are on our website at practicalpreservationservices.com forward slash podcast. If you received value from this episode and know someone else that will get value from it as well, please share it with them. Join us next week for another episode of the Practical Preservation Podcast. 
For more information on restoring your historic home, visit practicalpreservationservices.com.